Amen. God continues to lead us from his word. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Well, brothers and sisters, when Christ was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness, having been filled uh, with the Spirit uh, at his baptism just before that, the Spirit equipping him, enabling him, preparing him, to face the temptation that he was about to face. Satan came to him and tempted him. And of the responses Christ gave to Satan when Satan confronted him was this. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so it is for Christ, and so it is for us, his people. So brothers and sisters, as we uh, sit now and listen to the preaching of the word, realize this is your necessary bread. This is what God has given you in order that you may live. So listen and live. I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12. In your bulletin is an outline. I encourage you to use that, follow along, take notes. My habit normally on vacation is to study other passages than I've been studying, and usually that leads to a sermon series when I get back and uh, that's what I did this vacation Romans 12 1 through 2 was the focus of my study Um, in preparation for Haggai let me encourage you if you haven't already start reading it you probably would not have known to but start uh, reading it it's a small little book um, but after this this week and next week we're going to start looking at Haggai we'll return to our series on the prophets And uh, so start studying as a family, read it through, use it as devotional uh, material for your family after dinner and the like, and uh, um, we'll then in a couple weeks study that. But this morning, we're on Romans 12, 1 through 2, and uh, this is a great passage. Most of you know it very well. You probably know it by heart, Um, but it's an incredible text in this uh, epistle. Romans 12, 1 through 2, let me encourage you to stand as a read together God's word. Hear now the word of our King. I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege each week that you give us to come and gather and to worship you corporately as well as to now in the process of worship fellowship corporately around your word lord we know on sunday the words we use change from first person to third we talk about we and us so lord we pray therefore that you would bless us and open our eyes corporately 
individually and corporately, that we might feast upon you this day. Feed us in this meal, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The Bible is filled with descriptions of the blessings that rest upon the people of God because of redemption. For example, one such blessing would be joy in the midst of sorrow. When God's people came back from the exile, they were filled with sorrow. They were filled with um, obstacles, people opposing them, the Samaritans specifically. And yet Nehemiah came and exhorted his people, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Inclination, I'm sorry, implication, be filled with joy. Another blessing, benefit of, of the gospel in a person's life is rejoicing in the midst of an, unfu- of an uncertain future. First Peter 1, it preached on a couple, uh, whatever, a couple of years ago, perhaps. Um, God's people facing persecution, yet Peter c- uh, calls them. In this, speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the glorification, you rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Joy, rejoicing, peace in the midst of pressure. It's a great pressure. Philippians 4, Paul tells us, if you'll trust God in the midst of pressure, he's in prison, facing potential death. If you trust God in the midst of pressure, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These are three of the many blessings that scripture describes that can be ours in Jesus Christ. And yet, The corporate testimony of the church today is not those things, is it? And we're burdened by the pandemic. We're burdened by our country's or our our government's response to the uh, pandemic. We're tired of the masks. We're we're, uh, concerned about what's going to happen politically. We're concerned about, many of you as I've spoken to, are concerned about what the loss of, or better yet, the encroachment of such authority that we've seen this past year over the church, over God's uh, uh, people, what that means for us, our children. And you add to that the personal struggles that we right now, every one of us right now are in. Everyone, whether it be assurance of salvation, conflicts in your marriage, um, impurity, struggles with impurity, struggles with, with specific sin, all of us, Come here as a burdened people. And yet if Paul or Peter or Nehemiah were present today in the church, they would give the same exhortation, the same rebuke. And that is that we ought to be a people of joy, a people of gladness, a people of peace, a people of joy, a people of rejoicing. How do we do that? You're burdened. Do you just fake it till you make it? How do you do it? Romans 12 is one of many passages that would answer that, but Romans 12 is a great answer. Romans 12 sits in the book of Romans as the transition into practical Christian living. 1 through 11, you can just your Bibles are open, you can just flip through, you've read the book. All are talking about what God has done for us. What we were, what we now are in Christ. It's the doctrinal section of the book of Romans. 
Traditionally, we understand at the point of chapter 12, that doctrinal section transitions into practical. And now 12, the next five chapters, 12 through 16, deal with application. How then should we live? And so if you read on, first, first thing he says in verse 3, humility. Next one, spiritual gifts, then giving, um, et cetera, et cetera. And um, as you, if you read uh, through it, you see the practical exhortation God gives to his people. Well, Romans 12, 1 through 2, is traditionally viewed as the first exhortation towards practical living. And I'm going to make the suggestion to you, while that is true, it is far more than just the first exhortation. It is a bridge verse. Bridging what what Paul just said in the doctrinal section to what he's going to say in verses 3 and following in the practical section. And thus, Romans 12, 1 through 2, serves to integrate the theology you just learned into the practice that he's going to exhort. Furthermore, it is a bridge verse whereby it roots or grounds the um, um, exhortations of chapters 12 through 16 into the doctrine of chapters 1 through 11. So you'll see 1 through 2, yes, our exhortation, our yes, I urge you, do this. But you need to realize this is a bridge verse. It speaks and tastes and um, exhorts all of what we've just seen in chapters 1 through 11 and brings it to bear on everything that you're going to be exhorted with in regards to 12 through 16. Now, the theme of 1 through 2 is found at the end of verse 1 where Paul talks about our spiritual service of worship. The word for service there is the word for um, the worship or the acts of a priest in the context of the temple, Latreia. It's temple activity. It's the um, liturgical activities of a priest. So Paul, Paul immediately recognizes, and you need to realize it too, that everything you do as an exhortation, response to the exhortation of God, you're doing as a priest. Now notice he says spiritual service. And this word is not the word pneumatikos, which is the word for spiritual. This is the word logikon, which is the word for rational or in accordance with the word of God. In essence, what Paul's saying here is, brothers and sisters, now that you know everything that I've just said, now that you understand that, your call now is to, is to serve as a priest to God in his kingdom, offering up activities, a life in accordance with God's word. Well, what does that mean, Paul? Read chapter 12 through 16. So everything that you read from 12 on is our spiritual call of worship. All of it. And that's why it's, this is a bridge verse. This just isn't one of many exhortations. This is the overriding exhortation which serves as the, as the, as the foundation, the theme of 12 through 16. And that, what is that? And that is that you and I live as priests who serve according to God's word. All right, now what does that mean? Paul gives it to us. Notice with me the fundamental call. Verse 1b. Paul writes, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. We're going to walk through that little phrase, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. First, the word for present. It's the word that comes from the book of Leviticus. 
It's a word used in the context of worship. It was the word used to describe the priests placing or presenting a sacrifice on the altar. So Paul says, how do you serve as a spiritual service of of worship? First thing is, is that you need to first present. Secondly, would you notice that word present is the aorist tense, which in Greek is the past tense of completed action. It is present once for all. And the idea behind this is, this is more than just one time a thought. This becomes our worldview. This becomes that which, which, which governs the way we think and interact with the world in which we live. We think and interact as, as someone who has presented themselves to God as a sacrifice. Imagine in 586, if you were one of the Jews who were taken into exile, at that moment you knew that your life would be da- a, a changed forever. You, you went from being a free-born Jewish servant of God to being a servant, a slave of Babylon. And you would know in your mind there'd be this massive mind change once you got over all the horror and the, the shock, you'd recognize, I'm now a servant in Babylon. I'm a servant of God, but my whole world has now changed. I'm no longer a doctor. I'm no longer a magistrate. I am a servant at the bidding of the Babylonians. Brothers and sisters, when you become a Christian, and this is what Paul's saying is, is that you and I transform the way that we think we ought to from being a free-born sinner where we could do whatever we wanted to becoming people who recognize that my life now belongs to God. Now, how much of that life? All of it, even, the, even to the most insignificant point. And that's the, the emphasis of bodies. Notice the word present your bodies. In the Greco-Roman world, the body was viewed as, as insignificant. It was, the, it was the prison of the soul. It was viewed as evil. And and it was viewed as completely separate from what was important was the spiritual. And so in the Greco-Roman world, what you did with your body didn't matter. It was irrelevant. That part of your body, that part of your person didn't matter. God comes and says, no, it does matter. And that mentality that that body didn't matter led to all sorts of compromise, even amongst God's people. MacArthur has a quote i've got it there for you tragically many believers in the early church who have many counterparts in church uh, today found it easy to fall back to the immoral practices of their former lives justifying their sin by the false and heretical idea that what the body did could not harm the the soul and had no spiritual or eternal significance much as in our own day because a immorality was so uh, pervasive many christians who did not themselves lead immoral lives became tolerant of sin and fellow believers thinking it merely was the flesh doing what it naturally did, completely apart from the soul's influence or responsibility. So in that day, the body was insignificant. And so it's significant that Paul says, brothers and sisters, as a living sacrifice unto God, you are as a priest to both offer yourself, place yourself at God's disposal once and for all, which means you've done it. That's what you are. Your identity now is, I'm a sacrifice of praise unto God. And it goes to the most insignificant part of your life. In this case, your body in Colossians 3, whether then you eat or drink, or 1 Corinthians 10, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, 
do all to the glory of God. Even the most mundane things of life. Now as a Christian you recognize you're doing it not as a freeborn sinner, but as a slave of God. I forget who originated this quote. I read it in the last month. And it's this. The contradiction, the seeming uh, contradiction of uh, redemption. The non-believer who thinks that the free is actually enslaved. The believer who becomes a slave of God is now free. So we now, as slaves of God, enjoy the freedom of being what God called us uh, to be. Notice it says, present your bodies a living. In the biblical context of worship, the worshiper and the thing offered were viewed as a union. There was a, view, a union viewed there. And this was different in the ancient world. This was odd. Because in the ancient world, what you offered was a placation. It wasn't you. It was simply buying off the gods. But not in Judaism. Judaism, when you placed your hand on that lamb, that lamb became representative of you. And when you picked up that knife and slit its throat because of your sin that you just placed upon that animal, you recognize that's you. That's you. That's what your sin deserves. But God, because of substitution, has allowed you to have this lamb go in your your stead. And so in that context, a dead sacrifice was what was offered. A living sacrifice was the offerer. And they understood through, for example, in the context of worship, there was the burnt offering or the, or the consecratory offering. They understood that that land that was offered unto God is me. I'm offered unto God. That's why in worship, we stress during dedication. We're not going to put a plate in the back. We want you to come and, and either it'll be past you or you come forward. Place yourself in that plate. That's how God designed it. Worship's an activity. It's active. So a living sacrifice is is someone who recognizes that that my life is now God's. It is completely and totally given unto him. Now why is that? I'm going to skip the reference to Genesis 22. If you want a fantastic illustration of a living sacrifice, Abraham's living sacrifice, had he gone through with the sacrifice of his son, Isaac would have been the dead. And everyone would have looked at that man and said, wow, that man gave up the greatest sacrifice because of his love for God. That's a living sacrifice. Notice he calls him a living, and yet we're called to be a living and holy. The word for holy, hagaos, is the same word for saint. Now, what's the word saint mean? I've defined it many times. What's the word saint mean? It means um, claim, um, acclaimed by God, set apart ones. A saint is not someone who does things to make them amazing in the, in the context of the church. A saint is someone whom God has claimed to be his own, which means that's every one of you. In Christ, you become a saint, which means God says, I claim you. So get this. There's this contradiction here, but it, it's not. It's this beautiful bringing uh, together. We're called as priests and as the offering, we're both, to present ourselves to God as a living, living out the rest of your life, and yet holy. Holy emphasizes not our activity, but God's. God has claimed you, and that's why. So we respond to the claim of God. When God redeems you, when he redeemed you, 
He claimed you. And because he claimed you, you no longer are your own person. You belong to God. And therefore, in response, the call is, in all of chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, uh, 16, is what that looks like incarnate. What does it look like to be a living and holy sacrifice? Read on. Okay, that's the call. Now that you're saved, recognize you do no, you no longer belong to yourself. As Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is so, a sovereign over all, does not cry mine. And in redemption, God cries mine. Or better yet, you're redeemed because God has said, you are mine. You're my child. You're my bride. You're the apple of my eye. So now you're mine to be used as I deem at my disposal in in my way according to my will. All right. That's the fundamental call that leads us to being a spiritual, um, to, to offer up spiritual service of worship. Okay, worship according, or better yet, a life of service in God's kingdom, which is worship according to God's word. Rational service of worship. Now, what's the basis? Where does such, Romans 12 through 16, had I started preaching on Romans chapter 15, 1, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. On what basis do you do that? Do you do it because, well, because I willed to do though. If I'm a sacrifice, I'm going, I have to will to, to, to be kind to those who are weak. What's the basis? Why do you do it in essence? But more fundamentally, what's the foundation out of which this activity arises? Would you notice with me? Verse 1a, Paul tells us, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now this looks backwards. The command looked forward. This looks backwards. The mercies of God. Brothers and sisters, what in the world are the mercies of God? Well, get this. The word mercies, you'll notice, is plural. That doesn't mean, don't, you're going to be tempted to take this as if, oh, he's talking about multiple mercies. That's not what he means here. He's not talking about more than one mercy. Ultimately, Paul is a Jew, this is, this is traced back to the Hebrew, and the word for compassion or mercy is raham. It's onomatopoetic word, which sounds like someone groaning. And it's not a groaning of pain. It's a groaning of love. Stand up there at the altar, as they call it, and at a wedding, and watch the bride for the first time that the guy saw her in her wedding dress. He hasn't seen him for a whole day. Listen to what they say or do. And you'll hear, Rum, whoa, wow. Okay, that's the word. It's, it's a word of love. It's a word of adoration. It's a word of care, tender care. Now, in the Hebrew, oftentimes it's plural. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His, what? Mercies, compassions. Rahamim. His compassions never fail. That word is plural, and grammarians call that a plural of intensity. Okay? He's not saying that there's more than one. It's saying that there are infinitely amount. 
It's, it's an intensive plural. It's to say God's mercies are massively large. Paul at this point in Romans 12, you've got to see where he is. He's just described the mercies of God the last 11 chapters. In fact, I, you've got a list there in your notes that I have made. I looked up the word mercy and I recognize all of chapters 1 through 12 is God's mercy. So this is what was clearly in mind, but more. The Bible calls it, Romans calls it the kind mercies, the patient mercies, the loving mercies. But notice, brothers and sisters, the next section. It's the mercy of God that grants the child of God eternal life. Now think about these words. I'm not going to rip them off. I'm going to say them slow enough for you to, to register what God has given you. And it, whatever he's given you, it's by his mercies. Hope. Grace. Salvation reconciliation with God. God's now reconciled with you. A divine calling. No condemnation. Conformity to Christ. The promise of a glorified body. Freedom from the power of sin. The promise of a resurrected body. The privilege and status of sonship. Such that you look at God not as, as awesome scary, but as awesome father, daddy. The promise of participation in his honor and faith. Brothers and sisters, that's a small list. Paul, by saying the mercies of God, is as the hiker who finally crests the top of the mountain, and sees the entire mountain range. And as he stands there, he takes it all in, and he creates in him this sense of, of wonder and heaviness. You know what I'm talking about? This heaviness? It's not a heaviness of sorrow or depression. It's this heaviness of how, how great, how magnificent to stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon is to go, Whoa! Or what I thought of during this week, I want every one of you to imagine right now transporting back to the base of the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning and being privileged to watch the redeeming grace of God being worked out for the next six hours. Darkness at noon. Darkness is a declaration of God's judgment. And you're there watching and listening to the seven words spoken by Christ, culminating in this last phrase, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. If at that moment, imagine at that six hours, what impact would that have on you today who know, who know God's word, who know this is the Lamb of God dying in your place you would have this sense of awe, this sense of, of, of wonder, of praise, a yet of, of sobriety, of heaviness, not sorrow, but a heaviness, a cavedness, a weightiness of the substance of what you just saw. That's the word mercies. It's an intensive plural. Paul is looking back and going, whoa! Brothers and sisters, the foundation, the basis for you to be a living sacrifice unto God 
is not your intentions. It's not your good opinions. It's not your effort. It is you and I gazing, being overwhelmed by the mercy and the love and the grace of God evidenced in Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what Paul's getting at here. That's the mercies of God. And that, that, that realization is what leads in the Bible to holy living in the life of a Christian. Let me say it again. That realization, that meditation, that musing is what leads to holy living on the part of the child of God. Not your decision to be good. Listen to 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, loved of God. Now we're children of God. It has not appeared as what we, what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, this hope of God's mercies, fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. When that's your hope, when that's your focus, guess what happens? It causes you to want to be pure. 2 Peter 1.9, after describing nine spiritual virtues, Peter explains how they become incarnate in the child's of God's life. For he who lacks these qualities is blind, short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. When you and I forget God's mercies, you will not do Romans 12 through 16, no matter how hard you try. Forget God's mercies and you can do sola bootstrapia all day long, picking yourself up by the bootstraps and you'll always fall down. But if you live on the foundation, the platform of the grace of God, the mercies of God, the plural, the mercies, the fullness of God's mercy, that leads to holy living. That leads to... To service. And that's exactly what Paul gets at in Romans 12. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present. That's how you grow. And that's why you see this is this incredible bridge verse. He's not so much exhorting to a specific activity like you will in three and following. He's exhorting, he's giving this incredible um, a bridge between doctrine and practice, between the indicative what you are in Christ, and the um, imperative, what you must do in Christ. And what you are, the more you understand God, what he's done for you and made you, that's what leads you to forgive people who hurt you. Because how much have you hurt God? To love people who are loveless. Because how much, how loveless were you? And he loved you. See, brothers and sisters, we're going from, from, from like to unlike. How can, I, how can I say I love God and hate my brother whom I've seen? We are so much like each other. Just as they've sinned against you, you've sinned against them. But how much have you sinned against an eternal God? Brothers and sisters, you've heard me say this. What, what, what makes sin uh, severe is not the word sin, but what is sinned against. A sin against a rock is not a big sin, but a sin against an eternal God is an eternal sin. 
So if your brother sins against you, that's not as big a sin as your flippant thought against God that is a sin. That's an eternal sin. So when you understand who God is, what he's done, that serves as the foundation for all practical Christian living. Now, Paul gives us a catalyst. He gives us something he wants us to understand, and that's 1C. And what's sad, a lot of preaching, a lot of sermons on Romans 12 take 1C as the objective. It's not. It's the catalyst. What is 1C? I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living holy sacrifice acceptable to God. That's not the objective. It's the catalyst. You've got to see it. The word acceptable is once again from the worship service, Leviticus, the context of worship. The word acceptable was the word used of an acceptable sacrifice versus an unacceptable sacrifice. An acceptable sacrifice was a sacrifice that God accepted. An unacceptable sacrifice was a sacrifice God rejected. Now we, because of our default program, which relates to God on the basis of our conduct, We look at a passage like this, and we completely forget the mercies of God and the placement of the mercies in this verse. And we go back to the very beginning, or to the very next phrase, to present our bodies a living and holy. And our goal is, if we live in the right way, Romans 12 through 16, God will accept us. That's our goal. Our goal is to live by the mercies of God in the hope that if we do these things, God will accept you in your walk with him. And brothers and sisters, that's that's just flatly wrong. Let me explain to you why. First, a couple questions. Ultimately speaking, is there anything we by ourselves can do which will make us acceptable to the Lord? Is there anything you can do to make yourself acceptable to the Lord? You say, well, the answer is no, of course. No. Let me get more specific. Is there any offering outside of Christ that we can present to God that he will accept? What's the answer? Y'all say no? Is there any offering you can present to God other than Christ that, will, that he will accept? No. Do you understand what you just said? Do you understand what you just affirmed? What you just said is, all as a Christian, no matter what I do, does, that does not make me acceptable to God. So this is not the objective. You can never be acceptable to God by being humble, by, by exercising your spiritual gifts, by being subject to the governing authorities. That will never make you acceptable to God. In fact, let's be proactive here. If the righteousness of man is filthy rags before God, the best of man is filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 4. And brothers and sisters, is there any religious activity you could do that would make you more acceptable to God than you are right now? You say, but I'm a Christian. As a Christian, I can do things that make me acceptable. No, God says it very clear in Psalm 143, 2, not on the slides. It says, do not enter, uh, it's a prayer, do not enter into judgment with thy people, for in thy sight no man living is righteous. Now that includes Christian, uh, non-Christian. In thy sight, no man is righteous in and of themselves. No man. 
In fact, we can go even further. Take away original sin. You now, are st- you now have a perfect stand be- before God. Take away f- right now original sin and all practical sins that you've done. It's all gone. Can you do anything that is acceptable to God that he'll accept? No. And you know how we know that? The fall. That the fall taught anything, it taught this. It did not teach that man as a sinner falls short of God's glory. You know what the, what the, what the fall teaches? Adam wasn't a sinner when he fell. It teaches man at his best falls short of God's glory. If there are any question, consider what Paul just taught. I urge you by the mercies of God. If we take acceptance as the objective, you just completely contradicted what Paul just taught. And that is what you do is the overflow or the response to God's mercies. So we do not take acceptable as the objective. Well, then how do we take it? It's a metaphor not of what we must do, but of what we have become in Christ. Let me say it again. You got it there in your notes. Brothers and sisters, he's using a metaphor from the worship service. And it is not what we are, are called to, to, to do. It's what we are because of the mercies of God. And that's the catalyst. Listen to the words of my professor, Brian Chapel. Quote, for many years, I thought God's acceptance hinged on my righteousness. I read passages like Romans 12.1 as, as a threat. This is what my heart heard. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and then you will be holy and acceptable to God. It was as though God were wagging his finger at me saying, now you be a good little sacrifice, and then you will be holy and acceptable to me. That's how most Christians take this verse. The word holy should have been a clue to my mistake. Nothing that we will do will make us acceptable to God. Our best works are only filthy rags to him, unquote. So the catalyst is not the hope that in the end, God will accept us on the day of judgment and say, well done, that good and faithful servant. The catalyst is the understanding that this moment right now, because of Christ, you are acceptable to God. Think of the, of the sacrificial system. I've got it written out in your notes. Three different sacrifices, expiatory, consecratory, um, uh, communal. Expiatory, the sin offering. Think of the sin offering. Uh, um, um, uh, a consecratory, think of the burnt offering. You've heard sin, burnt, peace. And communal, think of peace. Each of those sacrifices, we recognize. There, if you count them up, I think there's 13, 11, I don't know. All those sacrifices together picture what Christ did on the cross. Would you agree with that? Each one of those sacrifices are picturing what Christ did on the cross. You agree with that? All right. No Christian has any problem, to my knowledge, understanding the sin offering in Christ. That makes perfect sense. Christ was my sin offering. The sin offering is where I go to the temple. I have sin. I lay my hands on the sheep's head. I transfer my guilt to the sin uh, uh, to the lamb. Cut its throat. Blood drain. Priest takes it. Choice uh, takes the choice of viscera. Puts it on top of the altar of burnt offerings. And I realize my sin is now forgiven because my sin was transferred to that animal. And that's what the gospel is all about, right? The good news is Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John one twenty nine. And because of that, we can transfer sin to Him. We get that. But most Christians stop there. They don't see how the consecratory, burnt offering, applies to the work of Christ on the cross. On the cross, Christ was the burnt offering, not just 
the sin offering. He was the burnt offering. What is that? Most Christians today, if you teach them a sacrificial system, if you instruct them on it, they'll think Christ is the sin offering and we're the burnt offering. Christ died for me, now I give my life to him. So he's, he's a sin offering, we're the burnt offering. And that's what Romans 12 through 16 is all about. Go out and do these things, and God will accept you. And if you don't do those things, God will look at you and say, oh, bad Christian uh, today. You might have the assurance that in the end he'll uh, somehow um, accept me. But today, on a given by a day-by-day ba- a basis, does God uh, um, accept me? No. Why? Because I failed at point, at point four. I failed in verse three. I failed there. Brothers and sisters, understand Christ is the burnt offering means that every command that God exhorts us to in Romans 12 through 16, Christ did it. Here he did it in his life. He obeyed the governing authorities perfectly. He was humble perfectly. He exercised the, the, the gifts that he had perfectly. I mean, he did it all. And therefore, Christ is the burnt offering means that we understand that every activity we could ever engage in is seen by God through the lens of Christ. Christ fulfilled it. I may not, but Christ did. I may not love you perfectly, but Christ does and did. And therefore, my activity in Christ is acceptable to God, even though it falls way short. Let me give you the the quote. It goes on, Chapel's quote. What I missed was that the words holy and acceptable are not statements of what we will become, but declarations of what we are today. How can that be possible for sinners like us? Don't miss the opening words by the mercies of God. God's mercies in Christ make us holy and acceptable. That's why we offer ourselves as holy sacrifices and lives of worship and praise um, that praise our merciful God. It's not our works that make us holy, but his. Our sacrifice doesn't make him love us. Jesus did. That's why we live for him as a sacrifice of praise. I want, to th- I want you to think of it in these terms. When I was a little boy, three or four years old, I don't know how old I was. Old enough to remember, but I was a young man, a young, a young, man, a young boy, three or four. I, I, my, my folks had a massive king-sized bed. And uh, I guess every king-sized bed is massive. It's no bigger than your king-sized bed. Okay, it was a massive king-sized bed, but to a three-year-old, it was a lake. All right, and you could jump on it and do all kinds of flips and never reach the end, okay? It was massive. And one day, my mom was making the bed, and came and said, I want to make your bed uh, for you. I'm three or four. So I go, and I start tugging on those sheets, vivid. I start tugging on those sheets, and I was aware my mom was tugging on those same, same exact sheets. And then the, the blanket, both sides, went around the other side, pulled them up. I couldn't get in the middle, but I would reach, and my mom would reach over me and pull it up. Then we put these massive, I mean, to a kid, they were bigger than me, these massive king-sized pillows on. Foof, foof. And now came the hardest part, right? This was before comforters, the bedspread. So I grabbed this bedspread, and I have to pull the thing. All my, my folks never slept with their bedspread, so it was on the ground. I had to pick it up, pull it all the way up, over the pillows on both sides, and then, what? Tuck it in. Right? you got to tuck under those pillows. I'm three to four. I'm tucking in. My mom's tucking in with me. I'm doing it. My mom's doing it. 
When I was done, I looked at the bed, and it was perfect. It wasn't a three-year-old work. It was the work that my mom did as I did it. But you know what? I didn't see my mom's work. I saw my work. And my mom's like, whoa, look at that bed. My dad uh, came home. Do you want to see what Greg did uh, today? We go upstairs. My dad looked at, man, good job, Greg. Great job. Do you know what that made me want to do? Next morning, guess what I did? Mom, can I make your bed this morning? Why? Because I liked making beds? No, because I liked the praise. I liked the acceptance. I liked the glowing beam of my mom looking at me and saying, Greg, that's amazing. Brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that's what God says about you this moment. And everything you do henceforth, once you receive those mercies, that's what God looks upon you and says, each moment acceptable. My child, acceptable. Incredible. Well, brothers and sisters, that's just halfway through it. We're going to come back to this next time. But notice... The call, the command. Yes, Romans 12 through 16. Imperatives are necessary and important in your walk. God didn't save us to lawlessness. But you know what we do as Christians? We define Christianity by what we do. I missed a part in my my notes. Mercies of God. This is what makes Christianity radical. I'll close with this. It's what makes Christianity radical. We think what makes Christianity radical is that somehow in Christ we become intrinsically better than the non-Christian. That's false. Intrinsically better than the non-Christian? I'll tell you what, I got some Mormon friends who would put probably any one of you to shame in your holiness. Outward holiness. Okay? Intrinsically better? I'll show you Muslims who have a greater faith in their God than you do in, in the real God. Intrinsically better? Brothers and sisters, what makes Christianity radical is not what we intrinsically become, not yet. What makes Christianity radical is the grace of God. Do you understand that? That's what makes it radical. Non-believers, Islam, um, uh, Mormons, um, Arabs, what they do, they do in their own strength and therefore will always fall short. We do because of Christ's strength, burnt offering. Which because of his strength, based upon his cross work, sin offering, we're redeemed and we're acceptable to God in and through all things. That is radical Christian living. When you and I can truly believe it, receive it, accept it, and live in light of it, guess what you'll do today? You'll say, Lord, I praise you that I am yours in total. Now, take my life. We'll come back to this next time. Let's pray. Father, what a delight it is to look at a passage which we might think was just law, but in reality, oh God, it is this beautiful blend, this bringing together the two halves of this book which helps us and guides us and informs and instructs us on how we ought to think and so live. 
God, we stand before you this day. I, don't, I can't speak for my brethren, but brothers, but, but, but Lord, I pray. I praise you. Thank you for your mercies. Lord, seeing how Paul wrote it, I can just imagine him putting the pen down, sighing, reflecting upon everything he just wrote, all the things that you revealed to him by your spirit. Maybe some things for the first time did he realize it. And he could just sit there with awe and reverence, with a smile of contentment. God, I pray that you would give us that sense as we gaze upon Christ, that sense of awe and reverence of all that you've given us in you. And Lord, may that, those mercies, be that which impels us in the call to present our bodies as a priest on an altar once and for all to be living sacrifices that you have claimed to be your own, wholly devoted to you. Father, we thank you. Bless us, O Lord, in our study of your word this day. Next week, feed us richly, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.